Well, good morning, guys. It's always good to be here at the Cedar Lake campus. Um, As Tony mentioned earlier, my name is Mike Gutierrez. I serve on staff here at Bethel Church as a director of small groups. Um, When I first came on staff, I had the opportunity to be here at this campus for six months. Loved my time here, um, and that's why I say it's always a joy to be back here. Um, Don't tell anybody this. If you can keep a secret, this is my favorite campus. Um, yeah, I'm, and I know I'm being recorded, so I'm busted. But, um, but yeah, if you ask my wife, you ask my kids, they would tell you the same thing. This is where we feel most at home. So it's really good to be here with you guys. I'm excited to open up God's word with you this morning. So over the past several weeks as a church um, at all four campuses, we've been working through the book of First Peter, this letter that the apostle Peter writes to the church. And we know that Peter wasn't simply or merely an apostle to the early church, but he was a disciple of Jesus, right? So this Peter guy, this Peter that's writing to us now is someone who lived for three years alongside Jesus, a guy who got to share meals with Jesus, a guy that heard Jesus talk and teach and preach, and a guy that got to see firsthand, a firsthand witness to how Jesus relationally interacted with all kinds of different people. So Peter saw Jesus interact with the, uh, the self-righteous and the religious characters of their culture. He saw Jesus interact with sinners, so tax collectors and prostitutes. He saw Jesus interact with, with the rich and the poor, with people who needed healing. And he saw Jesus perform miracles and heal them and love them and serve them. And so Peter saw all the ways that Jesus relationally interacted with these people. And he also got to see how these people responded to Jesus and his teaching and his ministry to the good news of the gospel that he was proclaiming. And so on one hand, he saw people respond to Jesus by worshiping him, rightfully so, as the Messiah. And he also saw people reject Jesus to the point where they sought to kill him. And so as we've been working through this book of First Peter, this letter from Peter to the church, we've kind of been parked in this, uh, in this particular section for a few weeks now. That started back in chapter 2. And what Peter has been doing throughout this whole section is he's taking everything that he saw and witnessed and learned from Jesus in regards to how he loved and pursued all of these different types of people. And he's now writing to us as Christians and saying that we are called to love and pursue people in the same way that Jesus has. And so far in this, in, this, in this section that started back in chapter 2, what Peter's been doing is he's been working through these, these three different relational spheres that we all find ourselves in. So way back, he started by talking about, as citizens, how we're called to be subject or to submit to the authority that God has put into place. He's talked about how we're called to live and interact in the workplace, how we're called to interact and live within the home, specifically as husbands and as wives. And there's been a central theme in all of this. And the central theme that we've seen is the central theme of submission. Submission. So citizens are called to be subject to the government that God has put into place. Employees are called to be subject or to submit to their employers. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. And husbands are called to show love and honor and respect to their wives. And of course, our natural tendency is to look at this central theme of submission and to reject it. That's what we naturally want to do when we talk about submission. It, it, it's, it, submission to us, it, it's, it's not something that's appealing. Submission is a taboo topic 
in our culture today. It makes us feel uneasy. But all the, as all this has been going on through the central theme of submission in First Peter, we've also been seeing that in being reminded of the, the fact that the gospel is countercultural. It's a game changer. It changes the way that we view and we see everything, including a taboo topic like submission. And we've also been reminded of the scandalous way, the scandalous way in which Jesus came to usher in his new kingdom. He didn't come to usher in a kingdom in the way that we would expect him to do. He didn't come to earth wiping out his enemies with an iron fist. Jesus comes in a completely different way. And in all reality, what we see in the way that, that Jesus comes in, in, his, in his ministry and his life here on earth is that it opens our eyes to a completely different way of loving, a completely different kind of love, a love of humility, a love of serving, a love of sacrifice, a love of submission, a love that says the king of kings comes to earth to die even for his enemies, not repaying evil for evil, but instead inviting even his enemies to the table of grace. So it's a totally different kind of love that we see with Jesus. And Peter has also been telling us, one of the things that Peter's been telling us in this section is that when people see this different love of Jesus, it's attractive to them. It's attractive to them. So that's why Peter can say that God can use the loving and serving and submissive wife to win the heart of the unbelieving husband. That's why Peter can say that God wins the hearts of people not through arguing, not through posturing or through accusation, but through grace, through grace. And, and God, most of the time, does this through genuine relationships, relationships that aren't dependent on you and I having the same exact stance on the latest political issue of the day. And so now Peter's coming to this section that we're going to be in today, verses 8 through 12, and he's concluding the, the, the section that he started back in chapter two. And he's doing that by addressing how the gospel frees us and calls all of us to live and interact with one another in community or another way to put it, how the gospel frees us to love in a sinful world. So let me read this passage of scripture to you. If you have a Bible, you can open up and follow along with me. It's first Peter chapter three, verses eight through 12. So Peter says, finally, so I'm summing up what I've been telling you in regards to relationships here. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Instead of doing those things, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then starting at verse 10, what Peter does is he quotes a passage from Psalm 34. He says, For whoever desires to love life, And see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So as you read through that, as you look at that text, you see that the very first thing Peter does in verse 8 is he points to five different ways that the love of Jesus can be reflected in our relationships. Before we break down each one of those five things, I want to point something out in verse 9 that I think is really important for us all to see. If you look at verse 9, Peter says, For to this you were called. In other words, 
as God saves us through the gospel, as he reconciles us to him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he's also reconciling the way that we can live relationally amongst one another. So all of a sudden, the believer, the believer's relationships can look like what God intended them to look like. And so because of the gospel, followers of Jesus are now free to love each other differently. So let's look at verse 8 and those five aspects that Peter says we have been called to and freed to through the gospel. And the first thing that he, that he mentions is unity of mind. He says we're free now to have unity of mind. Now, if you're like me, I would define unity of mind a lot of, time if, a lot of times if I'm honest. Unity of mind to me means that the other person comes to see things from my perspective, right? If you ask my wife, she's not here right now. She was in the first service. If you ask her, though, she would tell you that um, sometimes she thinks I miss my calling as a lawyer because when we have a disagreement, I'm that guy that tries to relentlessly get the other person to see things from my perspective. I'm not proud of that. And that's obviously not what Peter is talking about here. Peter's not saying that as believers, we're now called to love other people by arguing with them until through some mental gymnastics, they come to see things the way that I think that they should be seen. That's not what Peter's saying. What Peter is talking about here is that through the gospel, our eyes have been opened to the truth. It's not because we have it all figured out, but God has literally opened our eyes to the truth. So we now see as Christians where genuine hope is found. And we are free now to point people to that. So there's no longer a need for a Christian to, to, to allow silly things like preferences or personality or a differing opinion on some non-essential issue to divide us and our relationships. If you look at the New Testament in regards to the apostles, they certainly did fight for certain core doctrines and essential theological truths. They, they definitely did that. And specifically, they did that in regards to the person of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And they also had some pretty harsh things to say for false teachers who would try to distract and point people away from that essential truth. They urged Christians to reject teaching like that. So the gospel was a non-negotiable for Peter and Paul. It was a non-negotiable because it's the very essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So every letter that they wrote, they start off with a clear declaration of the gospel because it's the main thing. It's the essential thing. You also see in the New Testament that there was some disagreement. There was some disagreement in some of these non-essential secondary issues. For example, in Acts chapter 6, just as the gospel is miraculously spreading and, and, and advancing, we see that there's a disagreement about how a certain group of widows are cared for by the church. If you read on a few more chapters in Acts, you see that Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement. So there were disagreements. But ultimately, these guys were able to remember that despite some of their differences in views, that the gospel united them. Ultimately, they wouldn't let anything come in between the main purpose of proclaiming the gospel and gospel advancement. In John chapter 17, we see a prayer that Jesus offers up to the Father. And Jesus himself in that prayer prays for unity in the church. Why does he do that? Why does Jesus pray for unity in the church? Well, he goes on to answer his own question in that prayer. He says that he prays for unity in the church in order that the world might know him. Because when as believers, we're able to be unified around the gospel, 
we reflect the perfect unity of the Trinity. And people get a glimpse of the different love of Jesus. And that's exactly what I think Peter is saying here. If you go back to chapter 1 of this very same letter, Peter urges us to set our hope on Christ. So we may have differing viewpoints when it comes to some of the non-essentials. We may have different personalities. We may have different giftings. Some of us come from different backgrounds. We have different life experiences. All of these ways in which we're different. But through the gospel, Christians now have, as Acts 4 says, everything in common. The gospel unites us and it frees us to put to the side the differences that simply don't matter. So the next thing that you see in, in verse 8 that Peter says we are now freed to because of what Jesus has done is sympathy. Sympathy. And what Peter is referring to here is, and when he says sympathy, is that as followers of Jesus, we have now been freed to suffer with one another. That's what that word means, to suffer with another person. So we're now free to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, and we're free to weep and mourn with those who are mourning. So instead of dis- simply dismissing another person's problem or their trial or their pain as their issue and just not having to worry about it. The believer can now mourn with them and weep with them. The apostle Paul talked about the church as one body with many members. And it's a great analogy because within the body, when one, one member of the body gets hurt, all the other members are affected in some way. And that's how it is with the church. That's what Jesus desired for the church. And we also see this reflected in him, in Jesus himself. Because Jesus is the great high priest. He's the great high, high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He, he's the one that weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. He's the one that cries over Jerusalem. You don't see Jesus as a savior who simply rebukes, judges, and pities us. From above. Jesus is the Savior that comes down, comes alongside, shares meals with the broken and the brokenhearted. And now, as his disciples, we get to reflect that type of sympathy in our relationships. We don't need to retreat within the four walls of a new church building, forgetting and, and kind of pushing to aside the needs of the community around us, judging and critiquing from some type of ivory tower. But like Jesus, through the gospel, we now get to go, joining in people's joy, joining in their sorrow. The third thing, the third thing that Peter says we are now free to reflect in our relationships is brotherly love. Brotherly love. So Peter here is alluding to the clear fact that as believers, we are family. Right? So look around the person next to you. If you're a believer here this morning, you're with your family. Now, you might look to the person next to you, and that might be a very discouraging thought. Or it could be encouraging, I don't know, depending on who you're sitting by. But we're family. Believers are family. Galatians 2.20 says that we have all, as Christians, been crucified with Christ, and now we've been raised in newness of life. So we've all, as believers, experienced a new birth. And now we share the same Heavenly Father as brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know if any of you grew up with brothers and sisters. Probably many of you did. I think I see some brothers and sisters sitting next to each other right now. I grew up with three sisters in my house. So it was me, the only, the only boy with three sisters. And believe me, it was definitely painful at times, for sure. But we have this common bond, this unbreakable, it seems, bond between us. And we're actually right now, we're kind of all scattered. We live in different places across the Midwest. 
but we still have this, this common bond that unites us. And we love each other in a different way. You know, it's hard to describe the love that um, a brother has for a sister and vice versa. So we have a lot of differences. Don't get me wrong. I mean, growing up, they were playing with Barbies and Strawberry Shortcake. I was playing with He-Man and G.I. Joe. So we were very different in many ways. But we also had a lot in common. And so what did we have in common? Well, it starts with the fact that we had the same parents. We had the same parents. We experienced some of the same things in life growing up, some of the same trials and difficulties. And we experienced all of it as a family, as a family. And as a result, we have this bond. And through the gospel, what Peter is saying and what other people have said is that we're free now to demonstrate that type of familial bond and love with one another. We get to gather with one another as a family. We get to share our fears and our failures with one another. We get to be honest with one another. We get to pray with and for one another, encouraging one another. The fourth thing, the fourth thing that Peter says in verse 8 that we're now free to as we interact with one another is we're free now to have a tender heart or as some translations would say, show compassion to one another. And it's interesting because the word that Peter uses here to, to talk about having a tender heart refers to a, literally a deep, deep burden that you feel in your gut for somebody. So it's not just like the, the easy, like, hey, man, how you doing? How was your week? This is like a burden that we feel deep down inside for another person. And thank God, right? Praise God that Jesus had a burden like this for sinners. This is the type of burden that Jesus has for us. The same term here, I think it's interesting that Peter uses is, is a term that's used uh, in the parable that Jesus told uh, regarding the prodigal son. And the term is used to describe the deep longing that the father had for his son who was far off. So that's what we're talking about here. That's what Peter is saying we are now free to. We're free to have this deep longing for people in our hearts. We have a desire now in, in moments of our lives to listen to someone's story to get to know someone on a deeper level, to spend time with them. Recently in my life, there's been some people that I think God has caused me to love. And I can tell you that I know for a fact that this is not of me. I know it's not. The way I know that it's not is because when I look at who I really am in my own heart, left to myself, I'd rather spend my time like kind of huddled up with my circle of friends, you know? where it's kind of safe and it doesn't get so messy. But sometimes I've been finding and seeing that God gives me a burden for someone that I normally wouldn't have on my own. So all of a sudden I want to get to know this guy in my neighborhood or this guy that, I've, that, I, that I met at a baseball game or something. I want to spend time with him. I don't just want to wave to him from the front yard, but I want to actually like, be involved in his life. And I don't know where that comes from other than to say that the gospel is what frees us in that. That's what causes us to care about people in that way. The bottom line with this, I think, is that God has opened up our hearts as Christians to the truth. And now, in moments, we find God giving us the desire and having a longing to see others come to know that same, that same truth. Finally, in verse 8, Peter says that the gospel frees us to reflect the different love of Jesus through humility. Through humility. 
I think we all have a pretty good understanding of what humility means. At least we think we do. Humility, I think, means that we no longer look towards personal gain all the time, but that we actually spend time seeking the good of another person. We don't have to be obsessed anymore with the advancement of self because we know that that leads nowhere. We know that true hope is found in Jesus and we're free now to point people to that, not, uh, not ourselves. I think traditionally we're prone to define and view humility as a weakness. That's what most of us perhaps grew up thinking in regards to humility, that it's a weakness. But Jesus totally flips the script on humility. He flips the script completely because Jesus is the king who steps down off of his throne to become a man. Jesus is the one that shares meals with sinners and welcomes the outcasts. Jesus is the one that picks up a towel, a bowl, and fills it with water and washes his disciples' feet. And of course, we know that Jesus is the one that picks up a cross and dies, even for those who have rejected him. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. and It does a really good job of, of, of highlighting the, the humility of Jesus. Paul says this in Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that's humility, according to Jesus. So after Jesus totally flips the script, on humility, the believer no longer sees humility as a weakness, but as a beautiful reflection of Jesus. So Peter in verse eight has pointed to five things that we are now free to do in terms of living relationally with one another, but he's not done. Okay. Cause if you go to verse nine, this is where it gets even more real. Okay. If you read verse nine with me, Peter says this, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling instead bless man it's getting hard now because i don't know about you i'm reading verse eight and i'm kind of cool with it because i'm like okay i'm called and free to love people who love me back okay i can handle that but now peter's taking it to another level he's saying that we're called to love in these in these ways and we're free to love in these ways when people don't respond back with love. As a matter of fact, if people reject you and sin against you, really nothing changes. So I don't know if anybody here is familiar, if you grew up um, in the 80s like I did, if you're familiar with the, the classic sitcom Different Strokes. You guys remember that show? If you know that show, this is the what you talking about, Willis, of this passage. This is crazy to us. This is crazy to us. Because it's one thing to, to love people who love us back. It's another to love those who on some level reject us. But Peter is saying this. He's saying still, still have unity of mind. Still have a tender heart. Still respond with humility. Still love people that do evil against you. And Peter knows what we all know. He's a human being, right? He knows exactly what we know. That relationships, living in community with one another, that it gets messy. And he's really been saying this throughout the entire letter. Throughout this t- entire section, he's been saying that employers will sin against their employees and vice versa. 
He's been telling us that husbands will sin against wives and wives will sin against their husbands. Brother will sin against brother. Sister will sin against brother. Peter gets this. But once again, he reminds us that the gospel is scandalous and that it allows us and frees us to respond to these things in a different way. Romans 5.8 says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's God's version of what he does, the people that sinned against him. This week, um, there's a lady that goes to our church at another campus, uh, someone that I've gotten to know over the last several months. Uh, she found out that her mom passed away early in the week. Shortly after learning that her mom had passed, um, she got contacted by the police. And the, poli- the police went on to inform her that they thought that there was actually a strong possibility that this was a homicide, that her mom didn't die of natural causes, but that someone that they knew, the family knew, um, had been taken into custody. And so she's been wrestling with this all week, as you can imagine. And so, number one, I just want to say on this point, during the week, today, whenever, if God brings this family to your heart, I'd ask that you pray for them um, because they're really going through it right now, as you can imagine. But also, I couldn't help, as I was kind of studying this passage and came to verse 9, I couldn't help but to think about this woman and her family. Someone has done great evil to them. You know, I had the opportunity to talk with this, with this woman um, just a few days ago, and I was just really encouraged because she told me that she's been praying that God would help her forgive this person and that God would bring her to a point where she could pray for this individual. So when you look at verse nine, she's seeking not to repay evil for evil. She's seeking to bless. She knows that God is for justice. She knows that justice belongs to him. She knows that she's free from the burden of getting even or repaying evil for evil. And that's very, very different. I think it's very different. And it's messy. It's not easy. But I think the gospel can produce this type of love in our hearts. I really do. A few points of application I just wanted to share with you guys in regards to what we've seen in verse 8 and verse 9. Number one, I think that we need to realize that everything Peter is describing here is the love of Jesus. Okay? Let me, let me expand on what I mean there. And I've kind of been saying this throughout our time together. But what I mean by that is... We need to realize that none of these characteristics that Peter has laid forth are of us. They're not of, they're not of us. For example, I don't naturally love other people. I don't. I don't know if that's disappointing to you, but I don't. I really don't. I don't naturally have a tender heart towards people who are hurting naturally. I'm not naturally a humble guy. Okay. I know that surprises some of you guys. And if someone does evil towards me, my first thought is definitely not blessing them. I might want to bless them with like a forearm or something, but I'm not trying to pray for them. You know, that's just not who I am naturally. If I can confess something to you guys, you know, a little bit earlier in the service, Joey was up here and uh, we saw the video from Pastor Steve um, in regards to everything that's been going on in Nepal and the earthquakes there. People have lost their lives. Um, they're trying to rebuild, you know, all these different things. And um, we had a similar 
um, time in our service at the Crown Point campus last week. So I'm sitting in there and all this stuff is going on. They're showing some pictures of the devastation and stuff. And man, I was just really, really convicted because my heart was not moved in that moment. If I could be honest with you guys, I was thinking they're not caring. And that's really, really hard for me to admit, but it's the truth. So what do we do in those moments? What do we do when we see our failure in all of this? I can tell you that this week I've spent time praying and asking God that he would change my heart in that, that he would produce a heart of love and compassion in me. These things are not of us. It's God who has called us out of something and into something new. Now, we certainly can try. We can try to fake it. And I think a lot of us do. I know I do from time to time. I try to fake these things in my life, in my relationships. But ultimately, that type of fruit that we try to produce on our own, it's not genuine. It's not genuine, and it doesn't truly reflect the love of Jesus. Listen to this uh, parallel passage from Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So when you look at that, does that list sound familiar? That's almost identical to what we've seen in, in this passage in, in 1 Peter. Really, some of the identical characteristics are right there. And you notice that Paul tells us to put these things on. So in other words, these are not attributes that we find within ourselves. They are outside of us. And specifically, these are the attributes of Jesus. This is, these, are, these, are his, these things describe his righteousness, not ours. So we're called to put them on like a garment. They're not of us. It's something that we put on. Secondly, another application I have for you guys this morning. In the last part of this passage, Peter tells us that when we do, when we are able, the gospel does free us to live in this way relationally with one another, that there's a blessing that comes from it. In verse 9, he says that so we may obtain a blessing. And then in verses 10 through 12, he quotes that passage from Psalm 34 where it says, Whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. Let him keep his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So really what we see here is is that Peter seems to be saying that when we do live in this way, when we do interact with one each other, with one another like this, that there's a blessing to be gained from it. So what is this blessing that he's talking about? Well, I think we know there's a couple things he's not talking about, and I want to hit those just real quick. Number one, we know that he's not insinuating a works-based theology. We know that we can reject that, okay? Jesus told us repeatedly that the kingdom of God is nothing like that. Jesus is the one that tells us that in the kingdom of God, those who labor all day are paid the same wages as the workers who show up in the 11th hour. So we know that this is not a works-based theology that Peter is putting forth. 
Secondly, we also know that it's, he's not um, preaching like a false prosperity gospel. Peter's not saying that do all these things and the blessing will be that you won't have suffering in your life anymore. That's definitely not what Peter is saying. If you look ahead to verse 14, Peter himself says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So clearly Peter is saying that suffering is still a possibility even when we walk in how the spirit leads us with these things. So then what is the blessing? If it's not those, what is it? I think we see here is that when through the gospel, we are able to reflect this different love of Jesus to people in our lives. There's a love of life. There's a joy that comes from that. As we have unity of mind, as we are able to show and receive brotherly love with one another, as we have a tender heart, as we have and respond to each other in humility, as we bless those, even the ones that that have done evil against us, when the gospel produces that type of love in our lives, people get to see the beauty of Christ. And there's great joy and blessing in that. Maybe somebody even gets to see the different love of Jesus for the very first time. Relationships are now strengthened and built up instead of being torn down underneath the weight of pride and insistency on getting our own way or getting even. That's a blessing. That's a blessing. Peter also encourages us when he quotes Psalm 34 by reminding us that God's ultimate goal in all of this, in all of our relationships, is that Christ would be glorified. Okay? So as we seek to reflect Jesus in our relationships... And it gets messy, which it eventually will, for sure. We all know that. As we inevitably fail, which we will, we know that God is right there with us every step of the way. Because we're participating in his mission. He's got a stake in this game. And so as we try to live in these ways, albeit imperfectly, we know that God hears our prayers when we fail and when we struggle. We know that he's on our side when it gets messy. You know, Peter also encourages us when he quotes that passage from Psalm 34 at the very end when he says that God is against those who do evil. In other words, in other words God hates evil. He's against evil. And what I think Peter is, why he's using that there is because he's going back to verse 9 and saying, okay, I've told you, don't repay evil for evil. Instead, bless people. And so now he's encouraging them in that and saying, remember, because God hates evil. So if someone does evil against you, one of two things is going to happen. Either that evil, that their sin is going to be paid for at the cross by Jesus if they come to believe, or it will be paid for in eternity. So he's encouraging us in that. Number three, lastly, the third application that I have for you guys this morning. Throughout this entire section that we've been talking about, way back in the beginning of chapter two, Peter has talked through these different relational spheres He's been pointing consistently to the fact that when we reflect Jesus in our relationships, it's attractive to those who do not yet believe. It's attractive to people who don't yet believe. And he's saying that this is the case in all of our relationships. If you sneak ahead to verse 15 in the same chapter, you see that Peter says, when we live this way, when we reflect this in our relationships, people are going to ask questions. They're going to ask questions. They're going to want to know what's up with the different kind of love that we're showing them out of nowhere. They're going, to, they're going to want to know where it comes from. They're going to want to know why we seek to bless instead of repay in moments. Why do we care so much? They're going to want to know answers to these questions. 
John 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says this, I, uh, excuse me, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. So he's saying, I've, I've loved you. Now you go and love people like this. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So my question for us this morning, just one of these points, something that's been on my heart a little bit, is do we currently have these spaces in our lives where people get to see the different love of Jesus played out, specifically those who do not yet believe? Or does somebody who doesn't yet believe in the gospel, in order for them to see this different kind of love of Jesus, they have to come here to this church or to this building. Are we reflecting the different love of Jesus by going into culture like he did? Or do they have to come to us? Do we have room in our schedules to spend time with those who do not yet belong? Listening to their stories, seeking ways to love them? Or do we generally spend our time tucked away safely in our holy huddles within a church? Where sure, Christians absolutely Eventually, we'll sin against one another, but it's relatively safe. It's a lot safer than going out because when it comes down to it, we're always going to have the same viewpoint on things like Bruce Jenner. We don't have to worry about laughing at the wrong jokes or the uncomfortableness of a conversation. If that's the case, I think we're really, really missing out on part of the blessing that Peter's talking about in this passage. And I'm actually guessing that many of us do have these types of spaces in our lives. I think we probably do in, in most cases, but we fail to realize the opportunity at hand. We, we fail to realize that God, God has pulled us out of something for a purpose. Our kids' sporting events, neighborhoods, the grocery store, places we frequent, the places we find ourselves day after day. What if we looked at these as opportunities to love people differently? like Jesus. This week, as I was going through this, seeing all that Peter had to say in regards to what we're called to, what we're freed to in our relationships, one thing that stuck out over and over again is that there's going to be failure in this. I've shared just a little bit this morning, just a little glimpse, really, of the failure in my heart to live in this way. There's going to be times where we don't find ourselves modeling the love of Jesus. There's going to be times when we're not tenderhearted, when we're not compassionate. There's going to be times where we find our motives to be selfish, where we want to get even. But praise God that his acceptance of us is not based on our ability to do these things perfectly. But that through the gospel, we are accepted based on Christ's perfect fulfillment of every single one of these attributes. And because of Christ's righteousness, we, we, the unrighteous characters of the story, can approach the throne of God in honesty about our failure and know that we'll be accepted and forgiven, asking him to produce a heart of love in us. And may that amazing truth motivate us and free us to love people through him. Let me pray this morning. God, we just thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for the gospel. 
We thank you. We thank you that the gospel gives us a new record, forgiveness of sins, but it also gives us a new power through the Holy Spirit to live and love people intentionally like you do, to see them through your eyes and to love them in moments of life when you produce fruit in our hearts in the way that Jesus did. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.